Do we have Penny on the line? Yeah. We do have Penny we on do. the line. Hello, Penny. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. How are you? Very good. How are you? Pretty good. Listen, uh, Penny, I, I want to explain something right away here at the starting. I, I know that you're going to think that I'm some kind of gigantic American arse or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but we try not to preach the choir here, so I uh, want to assume that none of our listeners have ever heard of Crass or Dial House, because that way we can introduce people to what your uh, what your band was all about and mm-hmm. what Dial House is all about. That seems pretty fair, doesn't it? That sounds pretty fair to me, yep. Excellent. So you started Dial House back in 1967, and it was the home of crass but crass wasn't even crass yet so i don't want to get all complicated right off the bat here but uh crass is often considered the first punk band so what was it like in the pre-punk punk days of crass well basically i moved here uh, as you say in 1967 looking for a retreat from a world that was beginning to look not too good to me um my idea then was to set up a community uh, in Britain, certainly at that time, that was an unusual thing to want to do. Um, I think in America already the sort of commune music movement had, had begun in those days. Uh, we found this little cottage way, way, way in the middle of the countryside on the, uh, on the edge of a forest uh, with, with a lot of land. Um, and at that time, we simply visualized the possibility of um, growing our own food, keeping our own animals... Uh, and developing our own life, uh, we thought we'd be able to get away with that one, as I think a lot of people dreamt in California and New Mexico and on the west of America. Um, and so it went. I mean, as uh, out of that, um, various creative forces developed. I mean, I moved in here as a painter, uh, and there was other artists, filmmakers, writers living here from the very start. And increasingly, we felt we wanted to get out, and we did get out in the form of, we, at one time, we had a sort of thing, perhaps a little like sort of Ken Keyes's sort of traveling circus. Ours was perhaps more organized in the sense we were a traveling circus. We went around to universities um, uh, and sort of concert halls, putting on big circus shows, which were sort of promoting alternative lifestyles in a fairly sort of laissez-faire, you know, take it or, take it or leave it way certainly very little political agenda in those days. Um, that picture changed somewhat through a relationship I had with uh, a guy called Wally Hope, who was um, a sort of late 60s hippie, if you like, who had this vision of squatting Stonehenge, which is one of the major um, historical monuments of Britain, uh, lays in the center of Britain. And he had the idea of putting on a free festival um, there were no free festivals in this country at that time. That was in the very early 70s. And together we planned, organized, and put on the first uh, major free festival in this country, which was held at Stonehenge amongst the stones, much to the irritation of the government of the time. The next year we did the same, but without Wally Hope, because by then he'd been incarcerated by the state, accused of being schizophrenic and um, as a result of that treatment either died or was murdered by the state. I've spent most of my life since then trying to work out that riddle and uh, that was probably selfishly perhaps the most politicizing uh, 
thing that ever happened to me that, that there was a direct experience. I mean, I seem to appear to be saying I wasn't political up until this point. Of course, I was well read and aware of what was going on in the in the world outside. But I think uh, personal experience is the thing that draws these things closer to the heart and to the soul. And certainly the fate of Wally under the hands of the state um, opened my eyes that, that we weren't going to achieve the dream we'd seen. We were fairly peace-loving. We were fairly easy-going in our criticism. You know, we'd got our commune. We were growing our own vegetables. We were creating our own art. We took it out to Stonehenge, and then suddenly we were confronted with the full force of um, the state. Um, and out of that, I suppose, out of my anger, out of my despair, came Crass, which was the first dark product of um, Dial House, the commune. You know, I, I find that really... Uh the generalizations, the stereotypes that people have about punk, they yeah. wouldn't, you wouldn't think that punk would come out of a commune group, an agrarian group, a, a group that's <laughs> trying to be self-sufficient. Were you surprised when the type of music that you were doing, all of a sudden there were these other bands that were doing that kind of music? Um, no, I wasn't surprised. What surprised me, being a sort of eternal optimist and also being... Uh, perhaps an innocent, was that, was that whereas what we, I believe our voice came from passion. There was very, um, I think it was Che Guevara who said that, you know, revolution is uh, out of anger, has no value. It must come out of love. Um, so I think we were sort of in fairly good company. And I think that our passion very often was, 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 was construed or imitated as, as anger, uh, and very often ill-considered anger. So in that sense, um, I wasn't shocked. I, I was disappointed that the, 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 the lack of depth of, of so much of what appeared to follow us um, came out of ill-rooted anger rather than deep soul-felt passion. Um, so that, so that, that was the only difference I felt. And that's to be, I mean, and, and, and that's a, a terrible generalization because, of course, there were some very fine, passionate voices that followed, followed us. Um, but that would be, the, but that would, uh, how I would define the difference, if you like. You know, and you you got to remember that this is obviously coming from an American's perspective because, yeah. uh, you know, what we know of punk here in the United States. I mean, I have friends of mine, uh, Kevin Harris, who's uh, running the board for us this morning. He's a huge Crass fan. I have friends yeah. of mine who are gigantic Crass fans, but not as many people here, in the, you know, not as much of a proportion of people in the United States know of Crass as right. they do as they do in England. And. Uh, what people think of it when they think of punk uh, is that, well, the first punk band was the Sex Pistols. They're considered mm -hmm. by many to be the first punk band ever um, mm -hmm. here in the States. Why do you think that their, like their stunt on the Thames following the Queen around on a yacht singing God Save the Queen got so much more attention here in the States than your efforts did? And did it, and did it get more attention in England than your efforts did? I think I think what happened was that the essentially speaking the pistols were regarded from the very start as an aberration on the face of rock and roll. Crass was seen from the very start as an aberration on the face of the state. Uh and there's a big difference there. Um you know the the only real argument that the uh pistols ever 
created was an argument amongst the record companies within the music business. We created arguments within Parliament. We, we created arguments with M MI5, you know, who are our CIA. Uh, and that was, that was the difference. I mean, the reason why the Pistols had so much massive media coverage was because they were no danger. You don't actually give massive media coverage to someone who is a genuine danger. We'd al already proven, if you like, you know, we've got a good track record with um, Stonehenge. Um, that was a major uh, cultural event. And I mean, the ramifications of that remain right through to this day. Uh, it had a huge social effect. Uh, so we already had a very good track record. Um, and I think that when we came along, from the very start, people knew we were serious. From the very start, um, the dangers to the state, to the status quo that we represented, were not something to be trivialized by the media. From the very start, we were not a, a part of the commodity market. The pistols were always a part of the market, which isn't to denigrate everything they did. I mean, they did some fine songs and... Um, had within the sort of theatre, within the pantomime, within sort of Debord's spectacle, they had a value, but they never, ever stepped outside the spectacle. We never, ever stepped into the spectacle. We are not part of the spectacle, and we remain not part of the spectacle today. Do you think that the greatest swindle then was that they kind of uh, sapped the passion out of punk and more commodified it than anything else? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and, and I think that's increasingly the case now, whereas, generally speaking, I mean, say, for example, if state radio, BBC, was to put on a program, which they do every so, every so often, about punk, you know, punk ends where we begin, um, always. And, I, I mean, there is a, within the academic world in this country now, in, in Britain now, um, crass are beginning to get mentioned, but, you know, it, uh, w within any sort of, uh, popular commodification culture, we still are not mentioned because we still remain too much of a threat, I believe, to, to standard ideas. But because your music was so unique and genuine and wasn't part of the punk music that, you know, the 1977 punk mu music, do you yourself consider your, I mean, do you consider your band punk or do you think that's just the way that uh, music people need to label it? I, I, I never was interested in labels. I mean, I, I, I would um, perhaps pretentiously prefer to identify uh, what we had to offer more with perhaps blues or with, and, and I don't mean the white version of blues. Um, I think that soul music, whatever you want to call it, I mean, it, it, it's irrelevant to me. I mean, our tradition certainly... Um, simply through our age, runs way, way, way back before punk uh, was invented by the media, in the same way as hippie was invented by the media, basically to contain and uh, possibly diminish, you know, what was a very powerful movement and remains a very powerful movement to this day, because punk, hippie, beatnik, call it what you will, I mean, the fact is that the voice of dissent will always exist, and it doesn't really matter what it's called. So I've never actually regarded as important whether we're a punk band or a anything else band. It's of no interest or consequence to me. Why do you think uh, Americans were so bad at punk? <laughs> were they? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't think they were, were they? I mean, maybe they were. I mean, I don't think Allen Ginsberg was a bad punk. 
Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> don't think Ken Casey was a bad punk. That's a good I point. mean, where does it begin? Where does it end? I mean, I think we carried more of, um, you know, the sort of beat movement into punk, uh, you know, so I looked to them and I think, geez, that's where my, so much of my uh, inspiration came from, you know, that, 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 that sense of, if you like, sort of social courage was so inspired by people like Ginsburg. It certainly wasn't inspired by people like the Sex Pistols, um, you know, so, so credit where credit's due, if you like. Um, in terms of American punk bands, and I'm not that knowledgeable about them, but I, th I think certainly the, the Kennedys did some pretty yeah, that's magnificent true. work. Um, so what do you, th I, I, I hate to keep sticking with this word, and I, I kind of want to get away from it because you, yeah. you've kind of opened my eyes to, uh, and my ears to, thinking about it in a different way, that it's just a sense of re rebellion. But, but as far as the punk music is, punk movement was concerned, what do you think is the legacy of that punk m uh, movement? And what do you think of bands that say they're the result of uh, punk like uh, Rage Against the Machine? Well, well... Um, that's, I mean, I think you've asked two questions there. Firstly, I'm not really in the least bit concerned about what, you know, whether people, you know, claim a part of a legacy. To me, the legacy of, the, the immediate legacies of punk are something like Seattle, uh, or something like the road protest movement, or something like, you know, a thousand and one people um, acting from a deep felt sense of political conviction throughout the world pockets of people we don't even know about that's what interests me not i'm not actually very concerned about the pop business and you know whether people think they've got elvis presley as a legacy or crass as a legacy that's of no interest or consequence to me whatsoever what is of consequence to me is um whether they're rock and roll musicians or you know a a, a chilean peasant is that is that something within their soul has been inspired by you know, one of the voices of dissent throughout time. I don't care whether it's our voice or Ginsburg's voice or anyone else's, Walt Whitman's voice. Who cares whose voice it is? What's important is that we keep the, keep the flame burning. You know, I mean, that surely is the only importance. You know, that the medium it comes out is of no consequence. That it, 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 It's the message which is of absolute consequence. So, in, I mean, that sounds like a roundabout evasion of your question. No, no, but... I don't think so at all. I, I think that that's a very unique and independent way of looking at it. I think that's a, I think that's very enlightening. Um, we're speaking with Penny Rimbo. Penny is a former member of, I should say, former or current member of Crass. I guess former. You stopped in 1984. And uh, your first album, well, Crass's first album, Feeding of the 5,000, uh, was named for the fact that the minimum number of albums you could press were 5,000 back then. And uh, it's finally about to go golden, <laughs> which I'm sure you're <laughs> real proud of. Uh, the first track of Feeding of 5,000 is an interesting little story on freedom of expression. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, well, it was um, a piece called Reality Asylum, which actually I had written pre to uh, Crass coming into being. Um, I'd written it in a sort of two-week spell of huge amounts of alcohol and huge amounts of depression, and out of it came, you know, a, a sort of punk treatise, if you like. Uh, so it was almost inevitable that when we you know, got around to recording something, the band took about a year after I'd written that piece to sort of come into existence and it didn't come into existence by us sitting around at home thinking well let's be a rock and roll band it happened people would turn up and we just did things and that happened to be the thing we did 
we didn't really imagine that at any time we would be a band of any sort whatsoever. Anyway, we um, we did. It's a spoken word piece, and it's basically about um, the role of Christianity within, you know, the, the, the role that, I mean, Nietzsche said that God was dead, and I've got a bit of an argument with him there, but he isn't around to sort of put his point of view now. But I, uh, um, I don't think he is. I think uh, Nietzsche is dead, but God still lives, and we've got a, so a lot of work to do yet. And that was what that piece was about. Uh, and uh, at that time, um, we, the, our first album was going to be pressed in Ireland. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the state that stood in. It was the people on the uh, factory floor who said, we we, you know, we're not having anything to do with this. We really won't, we won't manufacture this thing. So they sent it back to us. So I decided, well, the best thing to do is just to have two or three minutes silence at the beginning, you know, which is the space that that track would have taken up. Um, end of story, really. So we then eventually got around to finding a company that was prepared to press it as a single. So we put that out as a single and then were immediately visited by the uh, Scotland Yard, who are, you know, the sort of major police headquarters in London, Vice squad were sent in and um from then on we were sort of facing prosecutions and bannings etc etc et what, et what was their logic for coming after you what was their point of view of it well it was criminal blasphemy i don't think you have that in america but in this country there's a um law um against crin- criminal blasphemy and so you know to, to uh question the role of christ or the lord god almighty within um, British society remains a criminal offence. So actually they were trying to sort of hang a criminal blasphemy case against us. But it sounds like they just misinterpreted what you were saying. They utterly misinterpreted what I was saying, but then, you know, that law is about misinterpretation. I mean, when law starts beginning to be about interpretation, then, we, you know, we've really made a big advance. I mean, as we know, most law, particularly when used against sort of radical thought, has been about misinterpretation. One of the first ways that uh, Crass got the word out was through the power of graffiti. Uh, yeah. Here, here uh, in Chicago right now, we're having this huge controversy up on uh, Chicago's northwest side of my neighborhood. There's a guy going around, and on for sale signs, he is writing, uh, he or she, I don't know if it's a guy, uh, is writing no yuppies on all right. the for sale signs because of the yeah. gentrification that's happening to our neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so... Uh, uh, through the power of graffiti, it's working. Where it would front page stories, yep. or people are talking about gentrification. So, why did you pick graffiti, and what do you think is so f- powerful about it? Well, well, I mean, basically speaking, there's an awful lot of space which the uh, capitalist world um, exploits. You know, much to uh, and and uglifies. I mean, I find um, billboard work highly offensive. I don't need to know, and I don't want to know. I don't want, I mean, I don't want to buy the products that are advertised, and I don't want to sort of have to look at how they are advertised. And so, obviously, they were setting up the canvas and inviting us to, you know, produce our response. So, um, I think it's very, very powerful, uh, like you're describing, uh, this, this person working in Chicago. It's a very, very powerful, uh, form of comment, and I mean, it was an, an obvious one to exploit. I mean, even myself had been in Paris about a week, uh, a year before we decided um, to start our campaign in central London, and we'd seen uh, stencil techniques which we hadn't seen before in this country. Um, so we we sort of thought, well, okay, that's a very quick, efficient way of of doing graffiti work. So we then started off the 
campaign there would be anything up to about 12 of us working over the weekends every weekend up in central london and we actually managed to keep the whole metro um central metro line graffitied for about two years um and we would be up there regularly working because it's such a powerful way of getting through a message what happened when you went on uh, John Peel? Everybody here, even in the States, you, well, not everybody, but most of the people like listen to this radio station. It's an alternative radio station. Mm. They're familiar with uh, what John Peel does. What happened when you guys went on John Peel? Well, very little. I mean, we, it was sort of fairly early. Uh, it was when the BBC still, uh, state radio still sort of thought they, that we were just another you know, rock and roll band. I mean, the first thing that happened was they tuned our guitars, which we were very angry about, because I don't think we knew you were meant to do that. Um, apart from that, they sort of attempted to sort of make us sound tuneful, which we didn't understand. I mean, it was all a complete shambles, really. I mean, we never met John Peel, because you don't. And then when John Peel turned up on the show to you know, present it, he sort of spoke as if, you know, he knew us and we'd never even spoken to him anyway. <laughs> and it was just a part of the sort of whole spectacle. I mean, we weren't drawn into it. We thought it might be a valuable uh, thing to do. I don't think it particularly was a valuable thing to do. Um, after that, there was occasions where we attempted to um, get some sort of dialogue with John Peel, who incidentally I think actually has got some admiration or respect for what we do, um, but because of his role within state radio, has never been allowed to express it. He can't express it basically because to do so would be to threaten his um, his position. Well, he could do, but if he were to do it, then he would be threatening his position. So really, um, there's not a great deal to say there. I mean, basically, he has to serve a master. And he wasn't about to risk his position by um, making known his support for us, although his support for us did come through on other channels. Do you, do you know if uh, any of the crash recordings on the John Peel sessions ever came out and were, uh, you know, are they in the public domain right now? Can people get? Can people? No, he's. Uh, I mean, interestingly, we're the only one. I think we're the only one because he started his. I think it was his own label where he was releasing his his sessions and i think we're amongst the only band i think maybe we are the only band that he didn't release i think that's partly because he knows that if he did do he'd be in for a lot of sticks so i think he's just avoided that one like you were saying before crass uh wasn't all about getting on the front page of nme <laughs> new music express there about uh you ended up having discussions about you as you were saying before in the house of commons yeah uh, actually for speaking out against the war in the falklands and that's right you know right when i started this uh radio show our and our board operator at the time i was telling him that there were you know there are many people like a gentleman who's going to be on later in today's show uh who were against the war uh against iraq yeah. And uh, he was unaware that that was going on because he was in junior high school at the time. And right. I think that there are a lot of people out there that don't realize that there were people against what was going on in the Falklands. What was your stance on what was happening in the Falklands? Well, it was very, very quick. Our response was quick in the sense that uh, it kicked off. Uh, the moment it kicked off, we produced um, a, 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 a single called uh, Sheep Farming in the Fucklands. And that, which was a criticism of what was going on at that time, nothing particularly had go on, had, had, was going on. Um, the British fleet were heading towards um, the Falklands, and nothing, you know, nothing had gone down. No one was dead yet. 
we actually went out on tour with this song, uh, which was sort of fairly light-hearted. I mean, I don't think we could have believed what actually then eventually happened. Um, but then it did happen, so we uh, um, we we rewrote it. Included uh, at the time um, an ex-skinhead who at one time had been very aggressive toward Ritless and pretty sort of foul letters. We'd written back and eventually sort and gotten friendly. Well, he was on board. So we were getting information sent up from the Falklands, you know, through this guy about what was actually happening there. So we were getting information before the press was, basically. And uh, we were trying to get it out. I mean, we, we knew about the sinking of the Belfast. We knew about um, what happened with the uh, Sheffield, you know, the, and that whole thing about Prince Andrew being on the Invincible, etc., etc., etc. So there's a lot of, you know, very important um, uh, state-controlled information coming through to us, which we didn't quite know what to do with. So some of that was included in, in coded fashion on a flexi-disc we did, which we actually got manufactured out in Europe and then smuggled back into this country, and then through the help of uh, various distribution companies was slipped into um, albums and and uh, EPs by other bands. And uh, then when the shit hit the fan, we we actually said, well, it was a bootleg. We don't know where the fuck it came from. Um, but within that um, flexi, there was all this sort of coded information about actually what was happening. Um, then we became more open... Uh, we, we recorded another single after the Belfast had gone down called How Does It Feel to Be the Mother of a Thousand Dead, um, which was a sort of direct attack on Thatcher and her decision to sink the Belfast. But at the time, there was no other voice. We felt very, very alone in all of that. Um, you know, we were, again, we came up for prosecution under that, and then we started getting letters from, um, you know, quite a lot of people in very high political positions, sort of actually giving us support and saying, well, you know, we need voices like yours. I mean, my response was, well, why the fuck weren't, you know, where was your voice, you know? Leave it to a bunch of punks to make the criticism, but we did make the criticism, and at the time we felt very alone and very threatened, I, I happen to say, as well. Um, it was probably one of our hardest periods. I mean, that sounded very muddled. I'm sorry, you know, it's sort of like trying to get a whole history of something together in a quick moment like that. But if that, I hope that explains roughly something of what you asked. Oh, uh, no, it, it does. I, I think that it, it gives people the impression that you were against something that everybody was for. It's uh, much like when we speak out here about how wanting to end the sanctions against Iraq and right. uh, people don't understand. They're like, well, obviously then you support... Saddam Hussein, and that's right. just not the logic of it. No, and, absolutely not. And you also, uh, this wasn't too hard to do, but you screwed with Reagan's head too, didn't you? Yeah, I think that was, uh, you know, in terms of political pranks, which is basically, well, it wasn't entirely, it wasn't just a political prank. I mean, it was the time where Thatcher was up for re-election, and we, and, and we were looking for ways of moving in on her, and what we did was we produced a, uh, a, 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 a tape of a telephone conversation between uh, Thatcher and Reagan. Uh, into Thatcher's voice, we put all sorts of um, coded inf uh, information, which at that time was you know, strictly secret information, which we'd got coming out from this guy in the Falklands about the sinking of the Sheffield, the sinking of the Belgrano, etc., etc. So on the one hand, Thatcher is, was out of her own voice, 
um, telling people what had actually happened, um, but people weren't able to know had happened in the Falklands. On the other hand, we put into Reagan's uh, mouth a lot of information which was hypothetical, but equally true, you know, about Europe being used as the central theater, you know, in the event of a nuclear war and how he would be prepared to nuke um, Central Europe in defense of American interests, etc., etc. Um, a lot of that was hypothetical and, and theater, but probably fairly accurate. Uh, that tape was then taken off to uh, Europe and, and distributed um, amongst uh, the newspapers and totally disappeared. Nothing was heard of it for about six months, and it actually um, surfaced in the Pentagon. And uh, we were accused, well, we weren't accused, the, the KGB was accused of, you know, dirty tactic. It was used by the Pentagon as a, as a demonstration of the methods in which the KGB operate to undermine, um, you know, the, the sort of Western truths. Uh, it then surfaced over here. Uh, well, it actually surfaced in, at that point also as a result of the Pentagon. It is the Pentagon, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, the, uh, their statement sort of then appeared in all sorts of American newspapers, and then it appeared in the British newspapers, um, the, the sort of major, um, uh, you know, like serious newspapers in this country. And then... And then we will never know how it, it, it came back to us. We had a phone call one day asking us about a certain tape, which, of course, we denied. Well, eventually, we invited the guy. It was from The Observer in London, and he eventually came out, and we'll never know to this day how it was traced back to us. I mean, we were absolutely um, covert about the entire thing. Very few people knew about the production of the tape, it was uh, mostly done here and in our studio in London, um, only with people who we knew we could trust. Um, it's absolutely, it will remain a mystery all my life. I'll never know how anyone saw through that. In the end, we admitted that we had done it and then sort of took the flak. But, um, the, but the flak wasn't that bad. I mean, you didn't, what, what was, did you have to pay any penalty for doing it? No, 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 not, not, not in that sense. I mean, I suppose the flat was sort of more deep within our, you know, own psyche in the sense that, you know, increasingly we were, we started off serious, you know, we'd got a message, you know, live your own life, you know, get your head together, you know, sort of look at your own destiny, you know, develop your own will, etc., etc. That's where we came from. We didn't, you know, by the time... The Falklands had blown. By the time, you know, what has now became known as the um, Thatcher Gate tapes um, became exposed, we were sort of becoming political experts. You know, people were looking to us to say, well, this is right, this is wrong, you know, to make opinions, you know, particularly from a sort of anarchist standpoint. You know, we were, we were becoming leaders, if you like, in, 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 a, in a arena where the very thing we'd said from the start is there are no leaders. And that's where the flak was, I suppose. Yeah, the flak was a thousand and one newspaper articles, a thousand and one interviews about what do you think about? You know, I mean, for fuck's sake, we were still developing our own sort of picture, our own uh, view of the world. You know, suddenly to be thrown into becoming sort of like political figures was just not what we could possibly have conceived of. 
We're speaking with Penny Rimbaud, a former member, current member, whatever you want to say, ongoing member of Crest. Why did Crest dissolve? Is that why Crest dissolved? You were afraid of exactly what you were just speaking of happening? We weren't afraid of that. I mean, we, it, it was a realization. And I mean, part of that realization is that, is that if you're going to be in that field, then you have to have an agenda to match it. Um, and for all the will in the world and for all the seriousness that we bought um, to our work within Crass, the one thing we lacked was a, was a cohesive agenda. We didn't need an agenda when, I mean, when Steve and myself started the band in, you know, the late 70s, we were two guys in a little country cottage basically having a laugh. You know, we were serious, but at the same time, it was fun. Right. You know, eight years on, we were suddenly, we were of interest to the KGB. We were of interest to CIA. We were of interest to MI5. We, are, we were talked about in the House of Commons, for fuck's sake, you know, I mean, at the same time that the, the potatoes needed harvesting, right. the cats needed feeding, uh, and one had forgotten how to do those things. And we didn't have, how do we pull it through? What have we got to offer? For the last 15 years, you know, since that time, I've been looking at that. What have I got to offer? What what is the agenda? I have to find the agenda. You, we were in a position, and there's no question about it, 15 years ago, where we could have made a very, very big bang indeed. But when the dust had settled, what would we have said? What, where would we have gone? It wasn't enough, and I knew that. And it took us that time. It took us to be put into that position to say, okay, so we've got the criticism, but where's the agenda? And really, that was, if you like, that, yeah, that's why it collapsed, because in the end, we didn't have a clear agenda. So you, it seems that you have the same uh, problem that people are having with our show, This Is Hell, this little program here, radio program mm-hmm. here, in that people are having trouble figuring out if we're right-wing reactionaries or yeah. lefty radicals. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should do exactly what you did, which was just start hanging uh, anarchist tags on our show. So how would you define anarchy Whew. well i don't think i would can i <laughs> all right that's a good that's probably the best answer i've ever heard yeah i don't think it's my it's not my place to i mean my as i understand it is you know um not cut through the shit that's not the right i mean the, the work has to be done in in in, in removing the conditioned self removing 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 until there's nothing left until there's nothing there but you know that emptiness that we were born with and then to regrow but not to regrow with um imposed ideas not to not not to simply to grow with one's own soul with one's own spirit i mean i'm sorry if that sounds a bit mystical but there are there is life, and there is that which is not life, and I don't think the two are compatible. And to grow with life, a new person, to be reborn, if you like, and I'm certainly not coming any sort of religious crap here. I'm talking about something very practical. To, to not be in, in the way of yourself, then some, somewhere within that, a morality can grow, which isn't just a part of our history history a part of our tradition a part of the person my parents wanted me to be and that's maybe what i've been playing with for the last 15 years um so not not defining yourself by the material that you've uh brought in around you not defining yourself by consumerism but defining yourself just by who you are bare essence naked on the street absolutely yeah yeah and that has no label which is why i was if you like evasive about 
defining anarchy. I can't do that because it can only define itself. Uh, I think uh, Kevin Harris, our board operator, has a question for you. Kevin? Hey, Penny. How are you doing? Hi. Um, I just want to say, I mean, a lot of people here at the at this, this station in Chicago are big Crass fans, and Crass music gets played on the air here. I just want you to know that people in Chicago hear Crass on the air. And, I, I you know, I, I read uh, that big, you know, the big sort of manifesto that comes along with uh, Christ the Album. Right. And uh, over over winter. And I what I, what really impressed me was the the level of, of the adherence to nonviolent principles that mm-hmm. goes along with the uh, statements of anarchism right. in that booklet. And I don't know, because in America, people think that anarchists are inherently violent. Right. And so I, maybe if you could talk about that and just let people know what, what is the real motivation behind anarchism and, and the nonviolence principles with that. Wow, I mean, that's a huge question. and uh, well, That's what Kevin's all about, yeah, is big questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just do it once a show, big question. <laughs> I, I, I believe that, um, you know, that the end line of that principle, you know, uh, I think the essential belief uh, of anarchism, and now I'm sort of contradicting myself and giving an answer, but um, we're fundamentally nothing. You know, we're born with nothing and we depart with nothing. Uh, and that's the starting point. There isn't one person on this earth who initially I won't give my trust and love to. Now, my love can be taken away, possibly, but my trust can't. And my trust is that everyone is reachable. Everyone is touchable. There is no enemy. The only enemy is, 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 is the lack of love. Um, I do believe, and I'm, I, this isn't practical, and I'm not putting it forward as a practical issue. You know, if some guy's coming up to you in the street and he's going to sort of gun you down, it's not going to be useful. So I'm not, I, please understand, I'm not putting this forward as a practical principle. I'm putting it forward as, an, as, as, the, uh, as the essential, you know, where uh, the ramifications and the modifications, you know, have to grow from that. But essentially, as I said earlier, you know, like Che Guevara saying that, Revolution must have a source within love. You know, that anger is not enough and never will be. It's self-destructive. One has to enter into any situation uh, with, with the desire to communicate, and that desire to communicate has to come from love. And it, if, it, if it comes from oneself, then it's already prejudiced. If I enter into a dialogue and I carry myself into that, I've already prejudged that. I have to go naked into any, any confrontation, any dialogue. I must enter naked, because if I don't enter naked, I'm already taking in my own condition, which is going to be set up against a condition in, um, in attack or in, 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 in opposition to that me that I am presenting. So only when I'm naked can that genuine change occur and that genuine change doesn't only occur within the opposition it occurs also deep within oneself that is the self that must grow not the idea i have of myself but on the naked self which will feed and grow uh and and transmit true love and in shay's term true revolution so that's the, that is the fundamental, and I think possibly, you know, without going on for the rest of my life, you know, explains the question I was asked. That is the basic fundamental, as I see it, of anarchism. And if you want to call it anything else, call it anything else, because I don't care what it's called. 
um, I believe. I mean, it's, it, it, it has, has a great um, nihilistic tradition as well. Uh, I don't, it just doesn't matter what it's called. But as I understand it, that is the fundamental. We're speaking with Penny Rimbaud of Crass and a tenant of Dial House. That's the next thing I want to get to here, Penny. What is Dial House? Describe the countryside it's in. Tell us what it's all about. Okay, so Dial House, you know, to go back to the beginning of our uh, dialogue. Our circular dialogue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, uh, we found this little, some people have described it as a, 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 pl- a, a plant pot turned upside down in the countryside. And that's what it looks like in the way. It's a funny little red brick house. Uh, one mile from anywhere except another funny little red brick house, which is right next door, which is the farmhouse to which the cottage belongs. It used to belong. It's set in about 800 acres of uh, rolling Essex countryside. The Essex countryside is rather like a small version of Virginia. I traveled through Virginia about 20 years or 25 years back, and it reminded me very much of this part of Britain. It's very green, very... uh, very rich uh, landscape, uh, rolling hills, big trees. Uh, and we're set at the bottom of a little hill. Um, it was the house that became the commune, that became the home of Crass and has been my home and the home to many hundreds of people over its 33 years of existence, you know, in its present state. Um it has the misfortune, if you like, of now being set in what is the most sought-after land in Britain. The southeast of England is um, prices are rocketing, huge amount of development. Uh, it's becoming sort of yuppie incarnate. Uh, Silicon City is being built about 20 miles up from here, around about Cambridge. There's new airports, new motorways. Uh, new tunnels, new railways, etc., etc., and plang, bang in the middle of this is a little anarchist dream, uh, Dial House. So just this past week, Peer Group, a uh, London developer who now owns the house, or no, they uh, put the house up for auction, correct? Yeah. Uh, and the house went for about a quarter of a million dollars American money. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you afraid that when they put it up for auction that some nefarious persons would buy it and do something with Dial House that you don't want, including possibly evicting you? Well, of course, I, I, afraid isn't the word. You know, I was aware that that was a possibility. Um, ultimately, I don't think it's good to be afraid of losing bricks and mortars. I mean, it would have meant a very different way of life. And, that, you know, I don't particularly want to have to countenance that at the moment. But, I mean, yeah, I mean... Uh, about 10 years ago, British Telecommunications, who you know, a massive national, uh, they're our equivalent to your Bell, I think, Bell, Bell Company, the telephone people. Anyway, right. they're, they're huge here. They, bu- they bought the land of which the house is a part and actually wanted to develop that 800, of, 800 acres of land into a huge, um, wealthy, um, count, uh, wealthy estate. You know, um, house, they wanted to build 900 uh, luxury homes on the land. Uh, well, we and the local villagers staged a massive opposition to them. I mean, they have prob- they're probably one of the, well, they are one of the wealthiest companies in this country. So we, from the start, most people in the village were saying we don't stand a chance, you know, against someone as big as that. Well, through our experiences with Crass, we knew we did stand a chance and we not only proved it to ourselves, we proved it to 
you know, our, the local village. Um, so that, that was massively empowering, you know, uh, for hundreds, well, thousands of people who lived down in the village who are a mile away from Dial House. Uh, as a result of failing to get their um, plans through to build this huge complex, uh, they sold on to this company called Peer Group, who are much smaller, but actually much more vicious uh, company, absolute Thatcherite, um, new economy uh, type developers. They have spent the last six years trying to evict us. You know, we've been through the courts. We, we, we um, well, we've been broke a hundred times over through the amount it's cost to fight them off. Uh, that result, uh, our success in fighting them off, you know, resulted them in abandoning any hope of ever actually getting us out of here, which is why they put up the place for auction about a month ago, and why on last Tuesday the 23rd the place finally came up for auction and was sold. So what, do you know what the buyer is planning on doing with uh, Dow House, and do you ever foresee the tenants of Dow House actually owning the house? Is that what your next goal is? Well... Here, the good news now, we, we bought it. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. When did that happen? Uh, we had a, a, um, someone uh, who, who remained nameless um, came in on uh, our behalf about two weeks before the auction. Uh, she, she actually used to live here many, many, many years ago when probably we might have been called hippies. Well, she's now in property. Uh, she offered to help us in any way she could. So she became a separate um, person with interest. You know, so she acted basically as if she was a, you know, punter coming to look at the place, um, taking over the bidding, etc., etc. Well, she won the bid on Tuesday on our behalf. Uh, we're now... Uh, simply got to go through the paperwork with her until it's actually in our possession. I mean, it actually ended up with us having to pay considerably more than we had hoped we might have to. Uh, we set up an appeal, as you probably know, about a month and a half ago. Not only have we been deeply moved by, you know, the unbelievable generosity of people throughout the world, um, but we've also been inspired doubly to sort of reconsider our own role and how and what we could do with the house if we were able to buy it. And so it became increasingly important to us that we should buy it. In the end, we actually spent out twice the amount that we had thought we might have to, to buy the house. Uh, now, this we've managed on, uh, on several people have, have, have offered some pretty in incredibly generous loans to us for us to pull it off. But we realized that this was it isn't just a house, it's an institution, and it isn't just an institution, it's an expression of a living dream, and it isn't a living dream, it's a living reality. And when it came back to the living reality part of that circle, we realized the thing we've got to do is hold it, and we've got to hold it and then grow it, and that's precisely what we're now in the process of doing. Well, actually, at the moment, we're in the process of trying to recover from the sort of... Uh, ludicrously exhausting business of pulling off what we've pulled off in the last week but you know once we've settled down with that one then stage 
3,984 <laughs> of the programs off again. So uh, in the past, your work, uh, the work with Crest, the work with Dollhouse, has uh, gone to benefit charities, causes of one sort or another. Yeah. Um, and now Dollhouse uh, is looking towards the future because now that you own it. And yeah. at your website, the men- uh, you mentioned that you are playing with the idea of calling the new operation at Dollhouse the Center for Alternative Globalization. What yeah. does that mean, and what do you think the, the what is the what is a to- alternative globalization? Well, uh, an, uh, another an al- big question for yeah, you. Yeah, well, yeah, an alternative glo- to glo- uh, an alternative. I was going to make it a multiple choice, but I just yeah. didn't think of it. <laughs> well, I, I, I firstly like the whole sort of contradictory quality of alternative globalization because the one thing globalization says is there ain't no alternative. Right. Uh, well, I just like them to know here and now there is, and we're you know we're not about to invent it because I think Seattle showed it, you know, and a thousand other people, thousand million other individuals across the world are showing it, and if we can add weight to that voice, and that's precisely what we're about to start doing. I mean, we have never stopped doing it, but uh, but but what's happened through this appeal, what's happened through our fate, you know, in the last few uh, years. Uh, has shown us, you know, the value, the importance. I mean, basically speaking, we've just saved one of the most valuable plots of land in Britain, if you like. I mean, that sounds very grand, but believe you, if you look at the sort of values and costs around here, we've just ensured uh, that our dream, and I'd not talk about ours, crass is our dream. I'm sharing that dream with you. I'm sharing it with all the people who are listening. I'm sharing it with everyone who's written and who hasn't written right across. This is our land. That's a part of it. You know, let's call this, you know, one acre of, of the alternative globalization program. And there's a heap many more acres out there. And we're going to start sort of letting people know they're there. You know, and, and the ideas that emanate from those. I mean, if I look at the uh, force of what emanated out of here in its in the, in the crass days, then you know I'm not being sort of. I hope I'm not being arrogant when I say you ain't seen nothing yet because now we're secure like we've never been secure. We've always had this threat. We've always been fighting off landlords. We've always been fighting off greed. Well, we've just sort of said, okay, this is ours and this is ours until we want to stop it, and we ain't going to stop it. And now we've got a centre, and we feel very strong about that. I mean, I'm too tired to feel that strong yet, but I know I'm going to grow to feel very strong about this. And it isn't because it's me that's feeling strong. It's because, you know, we've had fucking hundreds, thousands of letters over the last few weeks saying, yes, that, that is a dream. Well, I'm saying it ain't no dream. It's a reality, and we're going to make it work. And finally, you have this uh, litigious sort of Damocles taken away from over your head. Finally, That's right. free from it. Um, just a couple more questions for you, Penny Rimbaud of Dollhouse Crass. You can check out their websites by just—they're really long. So just go to thisishell.net, and right. there's a couple links right there. Um, how can folks here in the states, uh, let's say somebody's listening on the web or uh, somebody's listening just driving down their car here in Chicago, how can they uh, help support Dollhouse in their attempts at whatever your future? is either a, a center for alternative globalization or just continued forums and meetings and uh, workshops uh, how can people here support you Ooh, uh that's a, you know like every question you ask i can ask a hundred you know i can answer a hundred different ways i mean i want people to help themselves firstly 
um, if we can help people help themselves, then that's what we can do secondly. So I'd just like to say the most important thing to me is that people help themselves. You know, they find their own life. What I'm saying is that, you know, we, 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 we've been here for 33 years attempting to help people, if we can, to realize that, to realize their own lives. Uh, so that's my immediate answer. Um, I'm not about to start saying, you know, sort of send us money, send us this, send us that. I mean, the website sort of talks about our appeal. And if, if people are interested in helping us in that way, then, you know, then look to that. I mean, but that's a very different thing to, that's a different agenda to what we're talking about, I think, and I hope at the moment. You know, I mean, I'm sort of certainly not on this air show at the moment to sort of promote our own interests, you know, although those interests are shared with everyone who wants to share them with us. I mean, what's more important to me is that if you ask that question is how can people help, then I can only say, well, look, look, to, look to yourself. Do you understand what I mean? I'm not being, I hope I'm not appearing, you know, evasive or arrogant. Oh, no, no, not at all. I think that that's, uh, that's very honest of you. That's very, uh, 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 charitable of you that's you're the first person on the show who hasn't said make your check out too blah 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 <laughs> you know all right and this is the last question i have for you this morning penny uh it's what we call the question from hell and uh i'm kind of going uh again we're turning uh back onto our conversation earlier and i want to talk to penny Rimbaud, the uh music and uh culture critic i guess uh uh what do you think of the infestation of american hip-hop and rap culture in england today and do you see that as uh like the next step what do you think of that as here in the united states people saying that is what rebellion is in music and art today what do you think of that well i think there's a very different situation between here in america firstly i have to say that i mean firstly uh, secondly i have to say that i've never heard any hip-hop music and i wouldn't expect to hear hip-hop music i mean if i I'd have to have some very special friends, which I have got, and I could call through on that if I wanted to really hear what's going on. But what's happening in real hip-hop music in, in Britain is a strictly black music. Uh, there's not too much access, and quite rightly so, I think. Uh, it's a very, very difficult arena. I don't think it's the next big thing, because it, you know, it ain't about that. You know? And I, I'm quite sure the sort of the hip-hop exponents in America would say the same. I mean, it, it, just as punk wasn't about um, commodification, so hip-hop isn't about commodification. And every time that the um, sort of white um, capitalist interests catch up with uh, that particular arena in black music, it makes a very quick move in, you know, a sidestep into another development, which is why dance you know, which is more, which it more comes under uh, in this country, is constantly making its shifts. It's constantly becoming inaccessible, a bit like jazz did, and still does. You know, the moment anyone catches up with jazz, it's already gone around the corner and it's, you know, blowing another tune. Um, so if that's, a, that's the only answer I can give, I don't see it as being, it's certainly not something which can be commodified. If it is commodified, it ceases to be what it claims to be. Um, it has a very, very significant role, as I understand it, within black culture here. 
which becomes purely imitative, purely commoditive, and actually totally valueless when it when it when it when it is filtered out into um, you know white commodity culture, you know mainstream British culture. Is that a good answer or a bad answer? That's a fantastic answer. You've been fan. I have really. Uh, I want to. I want you to know that I really appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Well, I, I know. I've I know this. It. I know this sounds ridiculous, but uh, I, I. I know that. It's just been a great honor to have you on the show this morning, and uh, we've had very few guests like you on the show in the past, and I think that right now there are a lot of people who are listening here in Chicago and around the world that are very motivated motivated by what you are saying. Uh, peaceful, nonviolent, uh, anarchy and putting love above everything else and thinking of other people before yourself, I think those are just all incredible goals, and uh, I, I just really appreciate you being on the show this morning, Penn. Well, I've really appreciated being here, and Thanks very much for what you've said. All right. Take care. Yeah, and you. Bye-bye.